This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Grey Hot. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer. Join with me today is Amy Nelson. Amy, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. As of this recording, it is the last day of school for the 18-19 school year. No more kids. Yay! That's really exciting. Yeah. Well, it and, is. and also as we record this, it's the 25th anniversary of All Good Things, and we had a Star Trek Picard trailer drop today, which is really exciting. And you watched that just before this. What did you think? I did. Um, I'm so very happy to see the vineyards, like, because we know, you know, his history and Robert and where his family came from. And so it's nice to see him back there at his beginnings. What did you think? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I think it's just beautifully shot. I love the narration. It's just like telling us enough, but mysterious enough to make you want more. And I'm I'm just so excited for, for this show, I've said before. And uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting that, that we got that today and more to come, much more this year, yes. which is great. Yeah. Hoping for more at STLV. Absolutely. Well, even though that's exciting, that's not exactly what we were talking about today. Uh, but before we get to our main topic, I uh, wanted to go over a couple of things. Uh, we actually got an iTunes review that I wanted to read out here. We love your iTunes reviews and we love reading them. Okay, so this comes from someone identifying themselves as Comet Man. So they say in the subject, what a team. I really enjoy the Earl Grey podcast. Justin, Amy, and Richard offer a variety of insights to TNG. Justin with his well-researched observations, Amy with her love for all things Troy, and Richard with his no-holds-barred opinions bring out a fun and entertaining podcast every week. Keep up the great work. And they give us five stars. So thank you for that wonderful review. We love getting iTunes reviews. Keep them coming. And glad that listeners are enjoying the show. Yes. Thank you so much, Comet Man. And I will continue to have my love for Troy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that will never waver, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, we also have some Babel Conference feedback. This one was from Earl Grey 274, which was the Dennis Madalone interview. So, Amy, do you want to read the first one? Yes. Brian Nowarski says, I was quite surprised by his answer to my question. I was certain he would say that it was totally up to the actors to do the stunts themselves. Great interview overall. I love hearing all of the behind the scenes stuff. So, yes, thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Glad you enjoyed the interview. Yeah, glad you asked a great question. (laughs) Yeah. So, Deborah Watson says, I really enjoyed this interview. My sister was a stunt person and found the best coordinators put safety first. Mr. Madalone sounds like one of the good ones, safe, thankful, and also having fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the guy has done tons of things that look really dangerous, but he made it clear that it's definitely a priority. He wants to always make it safe wants to make it exciting but safe. And so that was really, really great to hear because you don't want to see anyone, you know, truly put in danger with these things, but, you know, still get an exciting outcome. So that's great. Yeah. And Patrick Carlin writes, I remember hearing his nickname Danger back when the shows were still on. Me and my fellow Trekkies were always on the lookout for him. There's danger, we'd always say. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And to be so knowledgeable to know the stunt coordinator while it was on. That's cool to know his name. (laughs) 
Now, didn't we see Dennis Madalone on the Deep Space Nine documentary? Yes, that is correct. Yes, I yes. know. So I was watching it and I was like, hey, we interviewed him. Oh, yeah. No, I, I thought that too. Well, actually, I think that was before we did the, the interview and I saw it and I was like, hey, oh, because I saw it early. But uh, but yeah, he was on that and you know he did... He was the stunt coordinator for five seasons of TNG, all of DS9, all of Voyager. I mean, he was there doing the stunts. And as was mentioned in the interview, like on Memory Alpha, it's too many things to list for where he was on camera because he would also, you know, be a stand-in or stunt double or Starfleet officer or something. So, but yeah, it was cool. He, he did have a little brief part in the Deep Space Nine documentary. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for your feedback on the Babel Conference. So today, we have joined with us a special guest, Chris Trebuzio, who is an associate producer on this podcast and several others, I think, and has appeared on some other podcasts. But this is your first time on Earl Grey. So Chris, welcome to Earl Grey. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Justin, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, fantastic to have you here. So since this is your first time on Earl Grey, tell us about your history with Star Trek. I came into Star Trek a little late in life. Um... Of all the series, I do have to rank Enterprise and DS9 as two of my top favorites. Uh, specifically for, for this podcast, TNG really set the bar. Uh, without TNG, we wouldn't have four, now five Star Trek series. Uh, we wouldn't have four TNG movies. So it really has set the bar. It did continue with Roddenberry's theme for the first two seasons. Uh, and, it came to be a standalone come see late season three, early and into season four through seven. That's great. So we're happy to have you on. And when uh, we knew that you were going to guest, I sent you a list of different topics. And there's one in particular that you picked out. It was the Gambit two-parter from season seven. So tell us first why you wanted to talk about that today. The Gambit two-parter was unlike... Star Trek, as we know, being science. To me, this episode was more or less your crime drama, whatever network you watch it on, whatever show you watch it on. It was more or less a crime drama to me, and that's kind of like my second favorite type of series to watch. Mm, okay, so something different, something that kind of fit into a genre that you you really like a lot. Yeah, it's not like I don't like Star Trek. I do, and I do like the science part of it, but there's the B, the B side, which is the crime drama. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as probably been mentioned on other podcasts, Star Trek is really great in being able to fit into a lot of different genres. There's so many different types of stories that you can tell in Star Trek, and I think this is one of them. So, Amy, just curious, what are your initial thoughts before we dive into it about Gambit? Yeah, I, after watching this again, absolutely really do enjoy this episode because it is so different. Like you said, I love the mystery of what's going on. They really, we don't see Picard, you know, until halfway through, you know, the first episode. And so we're on this, oh my gosh, what happened to Picard? And we're so curious. And I think the actors really come through with the emotion of losing Picard and, you know, Riker's willing to just break the rules and ask that we need to stay here and and data taking command and how his acting changed i thought it was very standout i just loved seeing sort of the uh political side of it all of do you have the upper hand and what are you going to do with that how do you gain leverage and in, in interview or not interviewing but you know what is that called? Interrogating. Interrogating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and gaining leverage to get what you want. And the whole political thing with the Vulcan, uh, the Vashar, which I thought was interesting to Talshiar, um, but it's Vashar for Vulcan. I just, and the whole curiosity of it all and how they're able to just really play off of each other, even though they're not really sure what to do. And every time I watch this episode, I'm like, would I be able to pick up the hints and to go along and like Riker was able to stop the, from them ejecting their warp core or whatever. Or when Deanna was like, he's dead, 
you know, and then Data's like, man, I'm a little stunned here, you know? I mean, they're just able, after seven seasons, they're able to pick up on what each other is trying to do. And I think that's, it's just so perfect for a season seven episode. I really do enjoy Gambit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoy it as well. It definitely stands out. It's definitely really enjoyable. Uh, Actually, for one of the first things to talk about here, you touched on it a little bit, but you know, we are told in the first scene of part one, Picard got into a bar fight and was vaporized. I'm sure nobody watching it at the time thought Picard was actually dead. But I mean, you're right, it does make for an interesting dynamic, them reflecting on it, Riker getting angry that, you know, he died in a bar fight. And we don't see Picard until 24 minutes into the this episode when it's revealed that he's basically on this this pirate ship. So I'm just wondering, like, how does it affect that first half of the episode? We only hear about Picard instead of seeing him as we usually do. And I'll start with uh, you on that, Chris. Oh, it's again, it's the crime drama part of it. You know, um, we we don't we hear something, you know, we go look out for him. We don't know where he is. So they'd set out to do their own investigation. They go undercover. They start looking places that he may have been or last he was. They go interrogate or they first question the uh, the bar patron, you know, this he was the last one to be seen or last one to see what had gone on. And then you had the suspenseful music and between Beverly's invest- medical investigation, you had the suspenseful music and then straight into the uh, straight into the title sequence. Okay. But yeah, I, I was just thinking it makes it feel different because you're used to, in most episodes, seeing Picard in the first half playing some kind of role instead of them just talking about him. What do, you, what do you think about that, Amy? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the standout scenes that I really liked is seeing the crew handle knowing that Picard was vaporized. And we really get this emotional scene with Deanna coming into Will's quarters and at first, you can tell that she's there more along the lines as a friend and like, how are you dealing with this? And then Riker is just, he's in denial and doesn't want to feel this pain. And Deanna gives, Marina gives a wonderful performance, just so good. And just, do you think you have a monopoly on pain and we're all suffering? And and then Will, ugh, Very frustrating. (laughs) He deflects and goes into command mode counselor and calls her counselor and just makes that shift into you need to be in your place. And it's like uh, her place is to call you out on your crap and that you are being selfish and that we need to have closure and that you're going to set the tone and that you are in command and you can't just be thinking of yourself. And I just think, you know, and she's definitely in tune with how the ship is feeling as ship's counselor. She just really does a really stellar job. And I just, I love that part of the episode, of course, because it's Troy doing her job as counselor. But it is a, it is a really great scene because I don't think it's too often that you see Riker really angry. I mean, and even when it's pointed out, he says, you know, you're damn right I'm angry. I intend to stay angry until I find whoever's responsible for the captain's death. I mean, it sounds like more kind of vengeful than you usually see from a Starfleet officer. So that stands in contrast, but the circumstances are are kind of different. And I think it has an interesting contrast to Best of Both Worlds when, you know, Picard is kidnapped and Riker is kind of not knowing what to do, maybe a little listless, and, you know, Guinan has to talk to him and be like, hey, you got responsibility for these people now. So that kind of knocks him for a loop. And then four years later, he's like, I'm angry, and I'm going to channel this anger. So it's interesting to see, like, how his response has changed, because his response in Best of Both Worlds could have been angry as well, but he was more, like, shocked and didn't know what to do, right? Yeah, and I think in that, because he knew who was responsible, the board. Uh, that's true. And here, there's, I mean, there is just so much mystery and, and unanswered questions that really, I think, sent him for a loop. I, I like the humanity part of it. You know, there's, uh, he becomes human, and there's the justice versus revenge. There's the Starfleet versus the rebel. And being that he's not only a, a commanding officer, he's a friend. He's someone he Picard confides in. 
and it becomes a real humanity issue and how Riker displays that. He's speaking from the heart, but at the same time, he's got that revenge back in the head, defying all Starfleet rules, you know, as if to say, we're going to get him, we're going to get him my way. And it's that, that, re- that initial reaction that one would get. Well, you know, it's interesting you say, and then you use the word rebel because that's, you know, when they get onto the mercenary ship, like Picard sets them up. So it's almost this, you know, yeah, like it's a precursor to what we're going to see, you know, as him being the rebel and, you know, wanting to break command because he knows what's best. So interesting that they sort of lay the groundwork so early on. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, I think. Yeah. So it it is interesting. Picard's lack of appearance in that first half really drive some of the the drama and the character development and and all of that i think it's it's pretty great now that kind of takes us into the part of the story that's about the mercenary or i would call it pirate ship so what i was interested in was uh you know gene roddenberry actually had more or less a ban on space pirates in in star trek i've read a couple of things about why maybe thought it was kind of cliched or didn't belong in in the star trek universe but you know this this season seven episode is several years after roddenberry's death and here we have you know a ship full of space pirates in in this two-parter and there's something i wanted to read from the the next generation companion by larry nemichek because i think it gives some interesting background on kind of how they dealt with that so it says this story was born from a six season spec script from iowa college student chris hatton And it not only bore an all-star cast, but truly went where no TNG story idea had gone before, breaking Gene Roddenberry's 30-year ban on so-called space pirate stories. First Michael Piller, and then Jerry Taylor, mulled over the impossible. Attracted by the premise of Riker seeking vengeance for Picard's death and the promise of an offbeat, less talky romp. As they warmed to it and Piller suggested it could hold up as an expanded two-parter, finally Rick Berman called Taylor in to talk. So Jerry Taylor recalls, Rick has a little bust of Gene Roddenberry on his desk, and he tied a little red bandana around Gene's eyes and said, Gene always said he'd never do space pirates, and this is a space pirate story. I don't want Gene to see this or hear it. I just blindfolded it as a joke one day, Berman added. Whenever they came up with a story I don't think Gene would like, I blindfolded him when we discussed the story. I take it on and off depending on who's in here. So I think it's it's interesting, you know, Rick Berman was you know, kind of the successor to to running the Star Trek franchise. And <laughs> and he felt like he wanted to keep Gene Roddenberry's vision going. But when there's something Roddenberry wouldn't have approved of, he had this little bust that he blindfolded. So <laughs> it's interesting, like the little dynamic they were going through and they decided to do it. But uh, I mean, I, I think the the question is, you know, they've introduced these these space pirates. Does that work seeing this, you know, ship full of, of mercenaries or, you know, could it have been done a different way? What do you think, Amy? Yeah, that's so interesting you said that because I, I also was thinking pirates and I, <laughs> I wrote in my notes, I'm like, is this like a pirate ship? Because kind of is. Yeah, especially when, oh, who's the main guy on it? Baran. Yeah, Baran. Especially when Baran was saying, you know, about the his predecessor. And I was like, huh, that's like, you know, the ship pirates of the, you know. Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah. But the scary one, Dread. Oh, Black- Blackbeard? Yes, Blackbeard. All the listeners are screaming at me. I do <laughs> apologize. Uh, yeah, but, you know, and how it's just the Blackbeard was the idea and that you get different, you know, captains of the ship. And so I that definitely came to mind when, uh, when Baran was talking about his predecessor. And it was interesting. I was watching just now with my brother, and he was like, well, at the end, spoilers, uh, when Baran tries to use it to kill Picard, Galen, it doesn't work because he and he ends up killing himself. And my brother was like, well, why does he have a thingy in his neck? And I'm like, well, because he used to be one of the crew, but then took over the ship. And so it sort of comes full circle that, yeah, there was predecessors and that people overthrow this pirate ship over and over based on, you know, the goal of, you know, getting money. So I think it works great in this story. And there is a parallel, which is a Klingon ship where you can move up by assassinating the person above you. So, <laughs> right, you know, we yeah. have that elsewhere in Star Trek. But but Chris, I'm kind of interested because you talked about it as kind of like a crime drama, but there is this pirate aspect. What do you think of that part? Well, I think 
Uh, it works as a pirate. The two times I saw this episode, I can think of if I can replace the pirate where we introduce Section 31 into Next Generation. This whole episode could be a Section 31 episode. And and how we could spin it, and it could be its own little into armor something Latin from DS9. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think... Well, I, I like the pirate story, but I think it really would have hit home, or really would have hit home for me if it was Section 31, if there was something... Because when we'll get to it later in the in the outline, but the artifact that they were getting to, I think they were getting for, was going to do damage, was going to hurt people, hurt colonies, hurt whatever, and that and that kind of gets with the Section Thirty One vibe that I got. That's really interesting. I never thought that you could replace it with Section Thirty One, of course, which didn't exist in Star Trek at that point, but. That that could have been interesting. I mean, also the we'll talk about her character later, but the person who's really a Vulcan who's there is kind of posing as or tells Picard she's an intelligence agent, so that could have fit into it as well. I guess I hadn't thought about it. Like when I think about this episode, I think it's fun, it's enjoyable. You know, the the pirates are there for the tension or the drama, but I guess it could be something else. It's like it doesn't have to be, but I think part of the appeal of it is that it is that different and you have seen like intelligence agencies before but not really so much about you know pirates or mercenaries but it's a pretty interesting perspective yeah that is a great twist and we totally missed it when we did our <laughs> section 31 <laughs> on next well that, Gen. That, that would that would have replaced it with that there's not even a hint that you would have yeah. had to change that part of the story but yeah, that would be pretty interesting. And who knows, maybe at that point they would have introduced the concept of a Section 31 ship <laughs> before you got into Discovery. Well, and one thing to sort of just put in here since we're talking about it, I was very interested when they, uh, when Talara was talking about the extreme isolationists on Vulcan. And that led me to think directly of Discovery, right? Season, you know, where they blew up Sarek's ship and stuff and... And I was like, man. And then I listened and I paused it and I wrote down like she was defining what the extreme isolationists were, that they, you know, didn't want contact with other aliens, that they believed it polluted their culture and that it destroyed the Vulcan purity and they wanted to eradicate all alien influence. And I thought, man, you know what? I learned more about the extreme isolationists here in Next Gen than I ever did in Discovery. And I thought that definition that really pulled up, you know, connected and made now actually, as I look back on Discovery, made that even stronger. So I wanted to ask you, Justin, is this the first time that we'd heard of extreme isolationists? Well, if you're talking about based on air date, I think the answer is yes. But okay. I think that, uh, you know, in, in is that really the case? Though? I'm trying to think of like in, in Enterprise when you have the Vulcan arc, are they isolationists? Would you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, that's as Amy was talking, that's what I was thinking, too, when you had the Serenites versus the Vulcans. And um, mm-hmm. I think you can actually correlate the two. Yeah, but yeah, like you said, air dates, like Mm -hmm. we learn about it here in Next Gen and then we see it later. But I thought the definition was very well, you know, put forth here in this Next Gen episode, which tied in and was picked up by other series, which was perfect. Well, and also if you're talking about isolationists, there's Enterprise, you know, the Terra Prime two-parter where there's these people on Earth that want to isolate Earth from the rest of the galaxy. So, Uh but I think... And I'm trying to remember, like, if you had anything in, you know, the original series or anything like that where there was a real extreme isolationist. I don't know if we did. So maybe that was something that was being kind of introduced. I mean, I think the other interesting thing is that I think it's in this episode they were doing a little bit of world building about Vulcan. I think it's the first time it's mentioned they were a founding member of the Federation. So Hmm. take that for granted. But I don't think that was really confirmed until this episode. So Oh, yeah. All right. So... Let's talk about a couple of the dynamics. So there is this Picard-Riker dynamic. We've talked about it a little bit, but you know Picard has to pose as this mercenary named Galen, and Riker basically eventually has to pose as a disgraced Starfleet officer that hates Galen. They're in conflict. They want to kill each other. 
So they're kind of working together for the good of the mission, but they have to keep up these appearances. They're working against each other and that they just, you know, be happy if either one was gone. So I think that's a pretty unusual interaction. So, you know, what do you think of that interaction, uh, Amy? Yeah, this again, this is what I'm so in awe of that these characters know each other so well that Picard, like I said at the beginning, just is going to set up something where Riker gets to step in and save the day. And, and Picard already knows his place, you know, that he's not well liked and he's only there because of his archaeology and his specialty there. And so he knows that he's like low man on the totem pole. And, and so to set Riker up again, getting this mission, you know, to be somewhat of a success, but yet still in their control, and I love that they get to throw punches at each oh, yeah. other, you know. <laughs> and I don't know. It seemed like they kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> I know. I was like, huh, is this six years of frustration yeah. being built up? And, you know, on the way out, Riker, uh, uh, Galen Picard kicks Riker. He just kicks him, yeah. yeah, I was like, ooh, boy. And, you know, and then Riker stands up and pops him one and, it's it's great. I think they just play it so, so well. I, I love seeing the dynamic and how they're pretending to be at odds with each other, but yet secretly we know. And the whole thing of, I mean, and Picard actually says like, oh, the webs we weave, you know, when Riker comes in and it's like, well, I'm supposed to, you know, befriend you and you know, it just gets so twisty and turny. It, it's great. Yeah, it is really great. I mean, yeah, the way that they, Riker, I think, kind of picks up on it immediately. I've got to think that there's like a Starfleet Academy class about taking hints from other officers in dangerous situations. Maybe they have certain like hand signals or eye gestures or something for certain situations, but they pick up on it really well. But what do you think about this aspect, Chris? I absolutely loved it. Um, I couldn't think of a better character to infiltrate the pirate associate the pirate organization than Riker. Riker's a poker player. Riker uses his poker skills of bluffing, of intimidation to get into the organization to earn Baran's trust, which is what the story wants to play out, or what Picard wants to play out for them to get the upper hand. Like Amy, I love the fight scene. Uh, I love Riker's first shock after he after Picard hit him. Riker was shocked about it, and he was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe he did that!" And then the extra kick to sell it that he was mad <laughs> at him. But again, it, you can't pick a better person to play the confidant role for the bad guy, although you're the good guy, than Riker because of his poker skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean Picard you know, does a great job selling what he's selling as well. So, and it makes me, I mean, of course, Patrick Stewart's a great actor, but I mean, it also makes me think of Picard, the character, you know, having all of this acting experience and giving data acting advice and all of that. So it seems like he can just shift into that mode. Like, okay, I'm supposed to be on this mercenary ship, supposed to want to kill Riker. And he just kind of goes into it right away. It's, it's great. I, I love that part <laughs> so much because just to see them. And I think, there aren't there separate scenes? Like there's one where Picard is, you know, punching and kicking Riker and there's another one where Riker has to punch Picard. Exactly. It's like, yeah. wow, they're really getting it out. So you get this excuse in that context for that those kind of like action things that you might see more on the original series. It's pretty cool. Well, it also ties in, like I said, like a crime drama. You have two CIA guys or two high-level federal agents that go in to infiltrate and they have to play off each other. Though one's been undercover for so long, the second person's got to come in, though he's got to get him out for whatever reason. So they play off each other. So I had a question as I was watching. And, you know, when Picard comes in to Riker for the very first time, and he's like, listen, I don't have a lot of time. And he was explaining how he got captured. And I really do like the technology that he says, you know, that these phasers, that there are actually transporter beams. And I thought, oh, yeah. my gosh, how genius is that technology where we've never seen anything like that before? I absolutely love that and wanted to highlight that. But I was wondering, 
Was Picard on holiday when he was taken? Like, why was he in plain clothes and was able to say, oh, I'm just an archaeologist? Like, do we know the backstory on why he was taken? Because he just mentions quickly, well, I was studying this and then they came down and attacked. Yeah, I don't think it's really clear whether he was just on vacation and studying something or if Starfleet had tasked him with a certain mission to look into these artifacts and go undercover. I don't know. I mean, Chris, is it even really explained? I don't think it's explained, but it's inferred the the way it sounds. It sounds like it's inferred like he took a couple days vacation because he wanted to go look for something and then happened to come across these guys. But it it seemed like there was some kind of something that Starfleet had heard about it or was interested in. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't think it's clear like what he was... Yeah. Really okay. doing that. All right. So I didn't miss anything. But I don't think yeah, you did. But but yeah, that uh, that technology where you can fire something that's like a phaser and it seems to vaporize you, but really transports you is really cool. I think this is the first time that we saw it. But you also see that kind of technology in the DS9 episode in her Arma Enum Silent Legus when they do that to uh, Sloan. So who's part of oh, Section 31? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bet Which, you saw it here first. Yeah, but it was on TNG first for sure. But it is a pretty interesting idea because yeah, at the beginning of the episode, you're like, yeah, Picard's not really dead, but they say he was vaporized. Like, how's that possible? Yeah. And I think it's it's pretty brilliant that they thought of this this idea. And it seems convenient. Like, if you want to transport something, you just fire at it, an artifact, a person, or whatever. But I know, it's brilliant. But I think... That might be the only two times we see something like that is in this TNG episode and that DS9 episode. I'm surprised you wouldn't see it more like, hey, this seems to be the thing to do, <laughs> you know? Don't need any pattern enhancers or transporter pads or anything. Yeah. So, Well, so there's another dynamic that I think is pretty interesting. So Picard and Riker are away. So that means Data's in command and Worf is Data's first officer. So, and there's a couple of interesting scenes, like, what do we think of, you know, Data as acting captain here and Worf as first officer? Chris? Uh, the Data-Worf dynamic. At first, when I was watching it, by rank, I was asking myself, why Worf? Because by rank, it would be him and Data and Jordy. But reading into it, you have Worf, who at this point is the typical Klingon, because there was no mention of any other classes of Klingon. This was the warrior Klingon. So this is two sides of a leader, two sides of one single leader. You have one that follows the rules and one that just wants to go and blow things up. And Data, of course, trumps Worf with his logical reasoning. I enjoyed it. I, I I really enjoyed the fact that when Worf was out of line, Data pulled him aside and says, you know, you're out of line. It's my ship. And I'm paraphrasing. It's my ship, my way. I appreciate it if you back me up because our examples, Riker and Picard, would never do what you have done in public. We see that a lot uh, in my profession in management. We don't break character in front of the crew. More, more welcome to discuss behind closed doors, but when we're out in the public, when we're out in front with the crew, you follow my orders, no matter how much you disagree with it. Yeah, I mean, that is a really a really great scene. I, we've talked about it on Earl Grey before, but it is great that he just pulls him aside and he's like, this is not appropriate behavior. You've never seen Riker do that. And of course, you know, Worf considers it and he's like, okay, you're right about that. And and it's great that, that Data says, I hope we haven't jeopardized our friendship. And, you know, Worf says that they haven't like to stay friends. I mean, it's, it is an interesting dynamic. And I think it may be the only time you see that Data-Worf dynamic like that. But I think it's just great in this episode. There's one or two other times you might see Data as, as acting captain. But I think he does a great job in this difficult situation. And Worf kind of struggles with it, but I think learns some lessons. And, you know, be pretty interesting. I'd be interested to see a couple episodes like Picard and Riker lost somewhere and Data and Worf her first and second in command. But Amy, what do you think? Yeah, this dynamic definitely jumped out at, at me watching this again. First of all, as I mentioned, like Data and Brent Spiner plays Data in command, I think so uniquely. Like you said, we've seen Data in command before, but this time he like channels 
a captain and his actions and how he holds his hands and how contemplative he is, you know, in the, uh, in his sitting room or conference room, you know, making decisions. And I just think Brent Spiner does a great job when it's so difficult to play an Android with no emotions that he's completely changed as a captain. So to me, Data is pulling off being a captain like perfectly. And then Worf always, you know, he's the action and we want to go and well, finally we're doing something. And <laughs> well, we we're just going to sit here. What do you mean we're going to sit here? And well, that's the only logical thing to do, you know? And so then when he makes that underhanded comment sort of for the last time and they get pulled in and just the blunt talk that they have and Data's like, listen, I'm sorry if this ends our friendship. And then what an amazing character moment for Worf to consider all that's happened. And like you mentioned, the previous examples of Picard and Riker and, and Worf, he stands his ground. He's like, you know, well, I'm supposed to give you, you know, alternate and objective actions to take, you know, I'm supposed to give you with these, you know, other decisions that are possible and Data's like, well, yeah, that's true. But once I consider, then you need to, you know, fall in line. And then I just, I love when Worf comes around and says, no, it is me that needs to apologize. And I hope if you can overlook this, that we can still remain friends. I mean, what a huge character moment that builds Worf completely in this episode. And I think the both of them are better for it. Poor Data. Poor Data. Data was in command of the Sutherland, and he had the uh, the insubordinate. Yeah, icky first Yeah, officer. the insubordinate officer. Yeah. Years later, he comes across, and it's his own friend that's insubordinate. But Amy brings up a good point, is that he embodies the captain, because it's not only what he saw, he's an android, so it's kind of like he's programmed, or what he's learned through the academy is there is no gray. It's my way or no way. And when Data sits in the chair and he folds his hands and he has just the fingertips right there, as you know, there's, it's, it's business here on out. I think this, again, I think this dynamic worked and, uh, I would like to see, uh, Captain Data in a, in a, on a ship. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the, the Sutherland. I, I was thinking about that too in, was it Redemption Part Two? And in that case, which I think that's uh, what season, early season five, so a couple of years before. And what you see in that case is there's this guy that feels like, you know, androids can't be, shouldn't be suitable as captains and he has to be transferred and, you know, Data says request denied. <laughs> and basically in this situation, Data is saying, hey, if I need to assign the first officer role to someone else, I will. So is there a difference there because this other guy is doing it out of, of prejudice and Data wants to deny that? And in this case, Worf is, just needs to be put back in line a little bit because he's in a different role. I just like wonder about the kind of difference in reaction. Yeah, I think Data understands the difference of where the, on the Sutherland, the guy was not wanting to follow direction because of his own bigotry against an android being captain where Worf was just too in the zone of being security chief and not being capable to step up to first officer because everything that the data listed was a good response for security chief but not good as first officer and that's why I love when data's like you know I will you know it, I'll show it on your record as a transfer and not a reprimand you know, that this just isn't a good fit for you, you know, if you can't step up to being first officer. So I think that there is a difference between the two. Okay, that makes sense. It was just a comparison that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Yeah. So, I mean, one other thing I think that's interesting in this episode is we talked about Talera a little bit before, but we have Robin Curtis playing Talera, and she played, you know, the Vulcan Savic in Star Trek 3 and 4 um, after Kirstie Alley originated the character in Star Trek 2. So here she's playing someone who is posing as a Romulan, later revealed to actually be a Vulcan, who's trying to obtain this psionic resonator for, for their own gain. So I actually have two questions, like, what do you think about the character of Talera, and what do you think about Robin Curtis 
playing that character because I'm sure as Star Trek fans we see and we're like, oh, that's like Savick. And I mean, there's a lot of different places in Star Trek where people play different roles. But I was just kind of curious about what we thought about that. Uh, Amy? Yeah. I saw the credits as as Robin Curtis and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I had (laughs) completely forgotten that we get the great Robin Curtis because she was great on Star Trek 3. And four, like just amazing. And so to see her as a Romulan slash Vulcan, you know, I she did a great job. I was very happy to see her. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think about the, the character as well? So you have this person who's part of this mercenary ship, supposed to be a Vulcan, tells Picard she's part of the Vulcan intelligence agency, but really not. I mean, there's like these different layers to her to her character. I mean, what what do you feel that adds to the episode? Oh, definitely, again, these little twists and turns and the webs that we're weaving. So she's smart enough, unlike Baran, to recognize that Galen is not who he says he is, right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. And that, so she goes in with her own story to try and build, get his confidence, and then they share their little secrets and I thought the the first time I saw, it, I was like, "Wait, you're just taking her word for this, you know?" But I mean, I guess when you're undercover and someone reveals that they're also undercover, like you have this bond and stuff. So she's definitely very sneaky and plays the part perfectly because she she gets his confidence and they pretend to work together just for her main objective and not obviously for the Vashar. Yeah, I think and I think Picard goes along with it because what else can he do? It's all the information he has. She could expose him and all that. But yeah, I know. And then at the end, oh, I love it. And he's like, look at this piece. And he's sort of baiting her, (laughs) you know, because he's figured it out by the end as well. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, what do you think of Robin Curtis as Talera? I much like Amy. I was shocked. I didn't see her name in the credits at first, but when you hear the voice, everybody has that distinct voice, and when you hear that voice, you think, okay, that's Savick from 3 and 4. Her character, it takes one to know one. I'll, I'll leave that cliche there, because both her and Picard are playing a role, but Picard doesn't know that. But she picks up on it, because she picks up on P- what Picard's doing, leaving breadcrumbs, if you will, for Riker to succeed, for his plan to go through. She picks up on it, but she also, I don't think it was mentioned, but she played this role. She consistently told, I think everybody knew she was a Vulcan, right? So she had this role in mind. She was a Romulan. She was Romulan. I'm sorry. So she, so she had this role in mind. So it was kind of like, I got here first. You know, this is my role, whatever have you. So like I said, it takes one to know one. I mean, it's, she knew. Something was up when Picard was leaving breadcrumbs. That's basically it. I loved the role. I thought it was, again, it was that Section 31 mindset that I had and that crime drama that I had that something's got to twist and something's got to flip. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, it adds some, some real interest to it because, you know, you see Baran, you see some of these other people. It seems like they're, I don't know. I, out of all the characters, maybe a, a little bit one-dimensional, but you have this character of, of Talera who has the different layers, and Robin Curtis is a fantastic actress. I think she does a, a great job and contributes a lot to the role. And it is pretty interesting, just because you have people of some of these different alien races, but to have more of a major one like the someone who's posing as as a Romulan there is great. You don't really get to see many Vulcans on the Next Generation, so that's always great. I mean, I think it definitely adds a lot, and it it's something where I think this really benefits from being a two-parter because you have the ability to explore that a little bit more. So let's actually talk about, we touched on it a little bit, but you know, this item everyone's in pursuit of is called the Stone of Gull, which is a Vulcan psionic resonator, we're told it's a powerful weapon. And we find out it, at the end, it can kill with thoughts of hatred, but can be defeated by thoughts of peace. So in the aired episodes, I think you can kill a couple people at a time, but the original story actually had it with the ability to kill millions, which would have been quite different. How well do we feel this psionic resonator works within the story, this thing that everyone is kind of in pursuit of and that 
in the end is kind of driving things. Amy? Yeah, this is the part where I put in my notes. Well, this is a nice after school special. Like, <laughs> after school it, special. <laughs> you know, it just sort of wraps up everything <laughs> a little too nicely because we're now getting the revelation where Picard's like, aha, I can see that missing piece between the war and the death, that it is this power of peace and how it can overcome and clear your thoughts, everyone. No negative thoughts. And and she tries and she tries and it just passes right through him, which I think is a great visual and great symbolism of letting, you know, anger and and war and death just pass through you and not let it affect you. I mean, the symbolism and the message is amazing, but it's just done so nicely that it feels like it tied up with a little bow. And I was like, okay, we've got our after school special message here, which I love. It just seemed a little too nice, if you know what I mean. But I love the fact that she's like, She's really trying hard and she focuses it on Worf. Like, of course, he's the Klingon and he's going <laughs> to have aggressive feelings, you know. And Worf, again, to his character, it just passes right through him. And I was like, yes, Worf, you passed the test. That's I have it in my notes with exclamation. So I, I, I like it. I think it is, again, a very unique piece of technology that they're bringing in. And again, this technology and how it can be turned to use as a weapon. And again, looking back on, oh, well, you know, the Vulcans used to be similar to, as Picard is saying, to my race and how we used to kill each other and stuff. So we get the tie-in and the symbolism of how we really do need peace to overcome the hatred and the war and the death. Okay. Well, interesting perspective. <laughs> uh, Chris, what do you think? I think it's a, like Amy, I think it's a weapon of mass destruction. One of the many we see in Star Trek lore. I, I, I like it. I like the fact that there's a fight for it. But even if the good win, what are they going to do with it? That's the thing. You know, what, put it back in the museum. Put I think. It, it, no, they were going to destroy it. Is that what it was? They were going to destroy it? I wasn't yeah, sure. They're, yeah. So, oh, is that what? Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's what happens. They're, they're going to destroy it. I apologize. Um, so the good's going to destroy it. But I think it's a really good weapon of mass destruction. Again, a tie-in to my Section 31 theory. Um, why this would make a great Section 31 episode. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I missed that they were going to destroy it. I see that now. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It, okay. So so here's the interesting thing. I, I actually love the ending because whenever in Star Trek or anything else, where there's this potential for violence and for conflict and it's resolved peacefully, I love it because that is the kind of thing that I want to see and I don't want to see more violence and death. And it's also one of the reasons that the original series episode, Errand of Mercy, is one of my favorites because the Organians resolve that thing by saying, no, you won't be able to make war. You, we just aren't going to allow you to do that. And that's one of the reasons I love that. And I love it here. It's interesting you say it like an after-school special. I just saw it as as a really great message, I think, that, you know, that these thoughts of, of, of peace and can make some kind of a difference. But <laughs> Amy? No, I absolutely <laughs> love the message. And I think the message is something that needs to be discussed and the symbolism of the resonator passing through you. Like, it is great. I absolutely love it. And I was thinking, man, this is... A great ending to a two-parter where we don't have, I'm sorry, Discovery lovers, where we don't have an entire season to come up with this conclusion. Like, I think it was so perfect. We had a good amount of suspense. We had a good amount of mystery, intrigue. And then we get the conclusion. And it was just so satisfying to me to get this conclusion. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I think in comparison with the overall season arc that we've been seeing in Discovery, like I'm getting that after school special feel just because it was so short. I really do love 
the the message here and the ending and again just reaffirms Star Trek Next Generation that utopia that we can be better I love it so I agree with you Justin okay it's, it's the best part of the episode I, I agree as well um, it's you know the weapon of mass destruction that turns into what everybody wants which is utopia now that I think about it it's also much like the Phoenix in First Contact are using a weapon of mass destruction to promote the welfare of society. The same could be said for this as well. You know, everybody's in the search for peace. Everybody needs to band together. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion about the Gambit two-parter from Next Generation Season 7. So let's go around with our final thoughts. Uh, Amy? Okay, so just real quick, yeah. <laughs> before we get to our final thoughts, I've got a fabulous Troy moment here in this episode. I wouldn't expect but anything less. I know, right? <laughs> I can't let our listeners down, as Comet Man says. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, one thing that just really stood out to me was when we were talking about dynamics, I thought a really good one was the Troy and Jordy dynamic that they shared together because... When uh, Riker was talking to the Enterprise and then they were going over the footage and they were like, I can't find this message. And I love that they pair up Troy because she is, you know, using her social training and her psychology to look for voice inflections, facial expressions, like where's the clue? And then they pair up with Jordy, who's analyzing the technical, like how is the transmission coming in? And and the fact that they're pairing these two completely different, you know, tactics and applying it here in this situation, super smart that they would do that and utilize everyone's talents to solve this mystery. And I just thought that was a real standout moment for me with Troy. And then that she gets to work with Jordy because they don't really get to work that often together. So I just wanted to highlight that that was uh, something else that I noticed from this episode. I really do enjoy Gambit part one and part two. I'm glad it is a two-parter. I think it's great. We obviously get there's some great comedic moments in here. And, you know, especially at the end where Riker's like, um, you're still dead, so why don't you go get some Shed-Eye? And, and then Picard's like, well, uh, if that's the case, then you need to end up in the brig. And then Data starts escorting him uh, this way, sir. He was kidding. And deadpan completely to the end. Absolutely loved it. I also love that we get the uh, tallest Klingon here, and I oh, was yeah. looking at him, and I was confused because I know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in TNG. No, but this it, is not him. Kareem no. Abdul-Jabbar wasn't in. No, TNG. he wasn't. Oh, I'm this sorry, is, DS9, right? No, no, the best. Uh, I don't think he's been in Star Trek, but but um, okay. Uh, so that Klingon was played by James Worthy. Yes. yes. Who was a basketball and player. Yeah. He was, yes, basketball for North Carolina, won the national championship, was there, and then went to play on in the L.A. Lakers. My brother was telling me all of this because he's a big sports fan. But I love the camera angle when he's walking <laughs> off his shuttle and they have the door of the shuttle framed because they're, you know, Beverly's doing their inspection. And... You can just see because Michael Dorn, he's not a short guy. He's a big guy. And here is this Klingon just towering over him. I just thought that was very well shot. I, it's a great episode. I love Picard getting to be curious about his archaeology and the twists and turn and the intrigue. And it's a great two-parter and so glad I had the chance to rewatch it and discuss it. Excellent. Uh, Chris, your final thoughts. You know, there's something to be said for when you do rewatches for episodic television. You know, sometimes you watch seasons and shows and seasons and you skip one, maybe you skip two, you know, maybe you're not feeling right. After watching this and analyzing it, I have a, a appreciation for this episode because of my points that I've made. But the question still remains. There's that scene where they go back down to the planet and you have Riker and Jordy and they're leading the investigation. Who do you think does the better Captain Morgan stance on that one rock? 
where they did the work. Oh my gosh. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. Yeah, Come I know. On, they do a Riker. similar stance, but it's always right. It's always right. Always Riker wins. Up. It's oh. almost like Jordy <laughs> wanted to match wits. You know, it's almost like, you know, they come into a boxing match and you get the ref there. And I, I said the same thing. Riker wins. I said Riker wins all the time. But yeah. uh, but this is, for me, I always thought this episode is a Picard-centric. But it seems like Riker played more the part and became the front man. And to be honest, this can be, if I had a Riker moment of the many in the series, this would be one of them. Because of his his humanity, the way he plays, the, his poker skills, all delve into the success of the mission. Yeah, all great points. I mean, for my final thoughts, I think I've always loved this two-parter. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, there's a two-parter that's like in the middle of the season, which you get a couple times. But I, I, I think that it's, it's great. It's fun. There's adventure, there's humor, there's, you know, some things we haven't seen before or that we learn, like Vulcans being part of like founding members of the Federation and building some of that world. You know, there's this ancient artifact and Picard playing this role and Riker playing this role and Worf and Data playing these roles that you don't usually see them. So, I mean, it almost seems like a lot of what the episode is about is being put into a situation and having to play a different role than you usually do. And I kind of like that. It's always fun when you when you see that dynamic. And we didn't really get to talk about it in depth, but this really started out, the story pitch was as one part, and they found that they could expand it into two part by by adding some some things. And I don't think it feels stretched. I think it's great as a two-parter. I always enjoy it. I think it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and it's something that's that's quite different from what you see in the rest of TNG. So I've just always enjoyed it. Love talking about it and hearing all your guys' perspectives. Next time I see it, I may think of an after-school special, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's been a great discussion, and I appreciate it. So Chris, thank you so much for, for being here on Earl Grey. So tell our listeners where they can find you online. Uh, you can find me popping in and out on the Babel Conference. You can also find me on Twitter where my handle is at TrekFanLV. All right. Excellent. Thanks for being with us. But I'll let our listeners know, I always try to encourage people to listen further in. Keep listening. Chris is going to give us a bonus question a little bit later. So stay tuned for that. Well, it's been so much fun talking about after-school specials today with Chris Trebuzio, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I, I really like that concept of Titan being an extremely diverse ship because, yeah, like, like you say, you know, we see mostly either humans or aliens who look like humans or have, you know, forehead appliances and that sort of thing. So to really get to stretch that and show us something new and different, I think, is really cool. Standard Orbit. <laughs> Pike, he was like a pseudo father figure to Kirk in the Kelvin timeline, which might have been a little on the nose because he's like, he, the previous captain is the father figure of the new captain. But I understood why they did it, you know, for story efficiency. And I, and I did really buy their bond, you know, Bruce Greenwood and Chris Pine. I bought that bond. Earl Grey. There's a line where Deanna says to O'Brien, I think it is. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the same as a, a super string? So, he's like, oh, no, no, no. He's like, no, 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 they're completely different. Yeah. It's totally different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Obviously. The orb. One of the things I was just really struck by is just the way in which this episode is so relevant today. And part of that has been the unfortunate way in which our culture has changed for the worse um, to see this happen in in much more regularity of people jumping on something and jumping on things even though they may not have all of the information but believing something to be true even without all the pieces of evidence to actually make it true and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. 
and please leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show. And we will read your review on the episode just like we did today. That's right. So if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Bonus question. Hashtag. Oh, Chris is back for a bonus question. All you listeners who have listened this far, you get a bonus. Hashtag still listening. So this episode, Picard has a hobby, gets him in the hot water. My question is this. What hobbies do you have that you can make your own Star Trek episode, much like we've seen in The Gambit? See, I thought you were going to ask what hobbies do we have that have gotten us in hot water. I know. um, I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) Like a hobby that would be interesting for a Star Trek episode? That's correct. And listeners, we did not get this question in advance, so we haven't had any time to think about it. Okay. I have one. But it's not a current hobby. But in my younger days... We're talking 20 years ago. Uh, I did a lot of mountain biking and the travels going there and going through listeners. If you're familiar with Moab, Utah and Southern Utah, like the Red Rocks and uh, very reminiscent of, I'm sure, some alien worlds. I think some mountain biking could be turned into a Star Trek episode and coming across aliens on my path and trying to not get me to reach the end of my destination. However, I have a funny story. The only time that I ever fell down mountain biking, I was not going warp speed. I was actually stopped and I couldn't get my foot out of the clip and I fell down because I was going too slow. (laughs) Oh, wow. Did, Did you get hurt? No, because okay. well, I was—I literally was stopped, and then I just fell right over. <laughs> well, it's good you just because I thought you were going to say, you know, I fell right over, and there was a cliff next to me. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so I—I I much prefer going up the mountain. Coming down, the fast speeds really scare me, and so yeah, I was going too slow that I fell down. So no warp speed on my Star Trek mountain biking adventures. All right, Justin, what about you? Wow, Star Trek The Mountain Biking Adventure. Oh, boy, let's think. Some hobby that would be of some interest in a Star Trek episode. I mean, that's tough because all my current hobbies are Star Trek. But I know, maybe I right? That's why I was like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might pick something from the past as well because uh, when I was a kid, I was very much into baseball. I was a big fan and followed all of it, all the statistics and all of that. So I don't know, maybe there would be an episode of Deep Space Nine where I would come by the station and want to talk with uh, Ben Sisko about his love of baseball. We tried to play some baseball on the hollow suite, but there would be a malfunction and the baseball players would be trying to kill us. Maybe. I don't know. I'm writing yes. this on the fly. I'm liking I like it. it. I'd watch it, Justin. You would? You're yeah. very kind. I like it. <laughs> well, yeah, but what about you since you asked the question? Okay. I'm thinking along the lines of, well, since I got into this whole podcasting thing, I was thinking along the lines of something like uh, The Manchurian Candidate from 1962, where in the movie there's the soldiers get brainwashed by the North Korean or the the Koreans for the Korean War. And I'm thinking to myself that's as I'm podcasting with someone, someone's feeding me information. It's kind of like a Section 31 type thing. So that would be mine. Okay. Well, I mean, there was actually a Next Generation episode inspired by the Manchurian Candidate. It's the Mind's Eye, the one where Geordi gets brainwashed by the Romulans to kill the Klingon ambassador. I think it's ambassador. Yeah. yeah. Great. But I, I like it. Yeah. You, you seem to like intrigue. I can tell that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a funny bike story, too, if you guys got time. We're in the bonus section, so anything goes. Yeah. High school, riding a 10-speed, the old type 10-speed Royce Unions with the curved, uh, curved handlebars and the bear trap pedals. Car was going out. I zigged and zagged into a brick wall. Oh. The left bear trap pedal dug into my shin. As and I, of course, I wasn't in the race no more, so I ran home. I rode home, rode home, went inside. As I'm taking a shower, to flap a skin on the ankle, 
was flapping like this. <sighs> and, um, of course, my mother goes, oh, what happened? How'd you do in the race? I says, oh, I'm fine. She looks down and there's the flap of skin going. And at the time, it was uh, my dad was working in the garage and they had the old intercoms. So, of course, she's screaming for my father. And my father took me to the hospital. And as he's driving, he's looking at me going, idiot. That's <laughs> <So> he's driving down. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, did you get some stitches out of it? I got eight stitches. I got eight stitches out of it. And then years later, I got eight stitches on the top of my head. That's for another bonus section of another Earl Grey episode. <laughs> oh, wow. To save that for next time. You guys gotten right. some interesting biking mishaps. All right. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it will come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not moonlighting as a space pirate? And I have a feeling you might do this often. Why do you have that feeling? I don't know. Something maybe with the goatee and your love of pirates. I don't know. Did I say I had a love of pirates? I'm just getting (laughs) the feeling. All right. Well, when I'm not... Having a secret life as a space pirate, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Still tweeting out my Season 7 rewatch of The Next Generation. But I have a little time off of work over the next week or so. Might finish it up. We'll see. I'm going to be so sad when you now are moving on. I've loved having your rewatch. Oh, thank you. My my slow motion two-year rewatch. I love it. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, yeah. Sorry. It's only once, but you know, you can watch me watch the Picard series as it comes yes. out. But did I mention you can find me on Hanging Around the Babel Conference on Facebook? Maybe I did. Oh, that's where we can find oh, you. Oh, okay. that's the other place. Yeah. Yeah. So Amy, where can people contact you when you're not playing a Vulcan posing as a Romulan after playing a different Vulcan in two different movies? Well, since my movie career is non-existent, you can find me here on the network where I'm co-hosting The Edge, which is about Star Trek Discovery with uh, Patrick Devlin. And I am on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. And I am on the Babel Conference as well. Isn't there another podcast or two that you do? Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. You can also find me on the Fandom Podcast Network uh, Discoville, where I podcast about the Orville and Discovery, but recently I'm only podcasting about the Orville. It seems my vacation <laughs> is uh, taking me away from Discovery, but I do enough of that on the edge. So really am enjoying the Orville, and so you can hear me over there on the Fandom Podcast Network with Haley. She's also on there too. Yeah, excellent. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers. They are Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, the wonderful Chris Trebuzio, who we just heard. And we have Joe Keegan and our newest member, Jim McMahon. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. You still wish you'd killed me? Mm-hmm.